Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. Will you finally find a family doctor? The health minister says you have a much better chance of being your head. What's changed? And should First Nations directly collect taxes from industry? Peter Polyev thinks so as he joins us today. Plus, keep all of your draw five for the week that was in BC politics. And should you waste your time paying parking tickets on private lots? Our Friday wrap panel weighs in. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk about BC's healthcare system today. Our health minister said BC has the highest number of uh, family physicians uh, per capita in Canada. He made those comments after a briefing on primary care here in in BC. Uh, Mr. Dix says that more than 4,000 physicians have signed up since the province's new family doctor payment model was launched a year ago. What's that mean for you and will you be able to find a family doctor anytime soon? Well, joining me now to talk about the issue is health minister Adrian Dix. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon. Uh, let's start with the, that, that first question, that, that basic question. Uh, one out of five British Columbians do not have a family doctor. Based on the numbers that uh, you were talking about today, based on your family doctor payment model, what will that mean for British Columbians in regards to the ability to find a doctor in the year ahead? Well, it's good news, first of all. I mean, last year, um, basically at this time, the end March 31st last year, we had 4,289 a longitudinal family doctors in BC, meaning that they're taking patients, right? Their family doctors are taking patients. Mm-hmm. And now that number is 4,997. And that's an increase of 708, 708 doctors in nine months. On top of that, there's an increase in terms of active nurse practitioners under MSP from 530 to 590, an increase of 60, which is an 11.3% increase. So that means we have more doctors. We worked on this payment model with doctors who put it in place. Secondly, uh, and this is really important, we have, uh, we're doing well with newer doctors who weren't practicing longitudinal family practice or were doing it less than we needed over the last uh, uh, decade. We have uh, now under our new to practice contracts, we have 237 uh, young, effectively young doctors working in those programs. They're new doctors to the system. And they currently have 48,000 new patients, unique patients to them. And we're building out their patient panel over a couple of years. So they've got 129,000 in their target. And finally, I'll be really quick on this. We're also finally, first time in the health care system, getting patientless, panelless, so we know who's attached and who isn't. The system right now, we say how many people don't have a family doctor, that tends to be based on national surveys. But this gives a real ability both for people to connect and say, I need a family doctor, and for doctors to say, we have this many spaces for patients. And we've done this. We've attached more than 80% of our doctors have given us up, given their patient list. That accounts for about 3.8 million unique attached patients that they have, that group of doctors has. And 594 of them have indicated they can accept new patients, right? Mm-hmm. So this means there's going to be an opportunity as we build out the Health Connect registry uh, to connect them to the attachment system and connect them to new doctors. Now, you make these announcements, uh, and, the, and I appreciate your comments here. Uh, you say the system is doing better. We're attracting more people, and hopefully people will be able to find a family doctor. But here's the other reality outside of your control, which is our immigration system, and British Columbia just generally attracting people. I, to, correct me if I'm wrong here. We've added, what, about 300,000 new people onto our MSP system in the last, I think, three years alone. Uh, I mean, just based on the increases that you're talking about, uh, how can we 
you know, make a net benefit, uh, there'd be a net positive benefit moving forward, when not only are we dealing with challenges of the past, but you are also having to deal with a significantly more people coming into the system who will also want uh, doctors as well. Uh, if you look at the last um, six years, in the period I've been Minister of Health, 40,000 people net have come from Alberta. And in the last three years, it's not 300,000, it's a half a million increase in the number of people on MSP. So that is increasing demand. Now, a significant number of our new doctors, the ones I was just describing, are internationally educated doctors. So it's not just one side of the story. We also have record numbers of internationally educated doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses, uh, healthcare workers that are coming in, health scientists, professionals. So there's some uh, positive aspect there. But you're right. Demand is increasing. BC's population is increasing like never before. Ten years ago, uh, we had an annual increase in population of about 1.3%. The last couple of years, we've been at 3.4%, which is a lot of new people every year. So you're right. We need doctors not just to, to deal with the people here. We need doctors to deal with new people coming to BC, whether it be from other provinces, uh, people who worked in Alberta and come here, or people who come from other countries. So that's a continuing challenge for the system. But, but the good news is, I mean, we the way we keep track now in Canada is something called the Canadian Community Health Survey. And we went from 300,000 people in 2003 without a a family doctor to more than 900,000 when I became Minister of Health. There are fewer than that now, but there are too many people without a family doctor. A lot of them have joined the Health Connect registry. And one of the reasons I was talking today was to say to them, here's what we're doing. Here's how the system's working. And here's why you can be more optimistic, even if you've been waiting a little bit long on the Health Connect registry, why we think there's going to be significant progress made. Uh, Minister, uh, under the new payment plan, basically full-time doctors would receive about $385,000 per year under the under this new model. Uh, previously, it was about 250000 Now, you've talked about the, the, the benefits there, but I'm just curious, how does, how does this n- new system benefit taxpayers? I, I know doctors are paid more. I don't even begrudge what doctors are making. That's not the issue for me. But how is the system better because of the change uh, that uh, you brought in uh, last year? Uh, three ways. First of all, um, we were near the, near the bottom in Canada in terms of paying family doctors. We're now at or near the top. And that makes a difference, right, and when you're attracting people to your jurisdiction. There's no question. And it tells us that longitudinal family practice, meaning family doctors with patients, with patient panels, is important. Secondly, the increase isn't as quite as big as you say. The 250, the 385 is a full-time rate. The 250 represented some people who didn't work full-time and some people who did right? Okay. So uh, it's not quite that big, but it is more. There's no question it's more. So I, I, I'm not disputing that your main point, which is it's more expected. Secondly, what we have are patient panels. So we're um, recognizing the work that doctors do in terms of administration and reducing that work. We're reducing some of the paperwork in, uh, in doctoring through this new payment model. And we are recognizing that some doctors have more difficult patient panels than others. If everyone in your patient panel is like me and they have type 1 diabetes, then you have a different task than a broader patient panel. So I think we needed to say that this kind of work in doctoring is as important as others and change the way we do it. So not fee for service, not fee for every payment, but taking out responsibility for a group of patients and dealing with their healthcare issues um, over the range of issues. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. And for years, younger doctors have been asking for this because younger doctors don't want to run businesses. They don't. 
doctors in the who've been in the system a long time have done that for a long time. That's what fee-for-service is about. And that professional independence of running your own business was important. Young doctors, they want to provide care. They don't want to be running businesses, and we're attracting people back. You see it in these new-to-practice contracts because of it. That's a good deal for taxpayers, I think. It's a good deal for the medical system when you have good primary care because it means that you're avoiding more serious illness and people are healthier and happier. Minister, we got about 45 seconds. This is a question I wanted to ask you. We had a a North Shore-based internal medicine specialist, Dr. Kevin McLeod, on the show earlier this week, and he was advocating for uh, the province to allow physician assistants to work in clinics. It would help ease backlogs and wait times for patients, helps doctors as well, because lots of stuff that they're doing they shouldn't be doing, they want to be dealing with more patients. What do you think of that idea to allow physician assistants to work in clinics uh, to help ease backlog? The backlog. Well, for, for the first time last year, we decided physician assistants could work in BC, right? So we made mm-hmm. that change. And I think, I'm sure uh, Kevin, Dr. McLeod would agree with that. There aren't very many physician assistants. So we thought we'd have the biggest impact. And the College of Physicians and Surgeons did in their regulating by focusing on emergency rooms because there aren't that many. We've added new categories of doctors, people who haven't reached the, the Canadian or the BC standard, but are trained doctors from other places called associate physicians. There are a lot more of them. And we're expanding um, both uh, uh, the work and the scope of practice of pharmacists, of others, to, to also fill in there. So I agree with Kevin about physician's assistance. We made a change that governments hadn't done for the entire history of BC. We made that change last year to allow physician's assistance. Right now, because of their numbers, we're, we're really keen on focusing on emergency medicine, which obviously Dr. McLeod thinks is pretty important as well. Minister, thank you for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Hey, any, anytime. Take care. Eh? But at this time, we're going to talk a little bit about Black History Month. Joining me now is our show contributor, Jerry Mira Judson. Hello, Jerry. Hello, Jazz. What's going on? How are you today? I'm doing okay. It's Friday. It's Friday. I can't complain. <laughs> at least there's that. And it's not raining yet, so. Exactly. Good, Actually, it's, it's quite funny. We're always talking about the fact that, hey, when's it getting dark? When's it getting dark? Yep. We always look out the studio because mm-hmm. when we lo- leave the show, it's, it's dark. dark. It's Yeah. But it's about 5.15, the sun starts setting. Right? So like at least we get to witness there. the sunset during the show. It's yes, pretty good. I know, but I love the idea that it's getting later and later. So it's just another month. We're all going to be okay. Oh, We're so all be okay. <laughs> I don't know how to segue into this, but there was some research uh, done by KPMG Canada mm-hmm. with regard to Black History Month. This bit of research comes out every February mm-hmm. to see kind of how we're doing in a corporate Canada sense with regards to diversity, inclusion and equity and racism in the workplace and things like that. And ideally, we improve in both of those arenas every year. Um, and KPMG is a firm that provides audit, tax, and advisory services to small to medium businesses and nonprofits and things like that. So this research this year kind of brings our attention to a double-edged sword. So the two most salient statistics here that I wanted to focus on is that eight in 10 black Canadians feel that their employer has made progress in diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, which is great. But the same thing, eight in 10 black Canadians have also experienced some form of racism or microaggression in the workplace this past year. And so that was striking to me um, that these two statistics can exist simultaneously. So Mm -hmm. I talked with Tamika Miller. She is a senior manager in audit and assurance at KPMG Canada, and she co-founded the firm's Black Professional Employees Network because I wanted to understand this a little better. So I asked Tamika, how can both of these things be true? It's really a numbers game, right? Like, I mean, if you take a step back, 
you have to admit that there has been some progress. Four years ago, there weren't as many C-suite Black professionals. Even if you go back a couple more decades, Black women in the workplace weren't really a thing or wasn't as, as prevalent as it is now. But then at the same time, as much as we are making progress, I think the other side of that coin, the 81% of Black Canadians who are experiencing the racism and the microaggressions, that kind of tells you the real story as to what's really going on. Because eight out of 10 Black Canadians are still going into the workplace and experiencing some sort of racism or microaggression, whether it be someone saying, oh, girl, I love your hair. Can I touch it? Even if they ask to touch it Mm -hmm. or just touching it like point blank. Right. So, I mean, there's many ways where that racism can can manifest. But I, I do think it's looking on one side saying, okay, we we have made progress. Things aren't as bad as they were maybe like 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. But at the same time, are we where we need to be? Not really. Not yet. So you have lived experience as a Black woman at the intersection of that in corporate yep. Canada. So I would be interested, like from your perspective, how can an employer or even an individual do better to tamp down on this racism in the workplace such that we don't see eight out of 10 next year? So I think the first step to fixing the problem that exists is actually acknowledging that there is a problem. I think a lot of people kind of brush aside DEI initiatives and racist occurrences because they think there's no problem. Like, what do you mean, Tamika, that you don't feel equitably treated at work? What do you mean you don't have access to the same opportunities and, and resources? Like, that doesn't exist. And I think it's because a lot of us have blinders on. So it's to kind of take the initiative to remove the blinders and listen to the experiences and stories of those in your circle or those who are in your environment and really recognize and appreciate that, hey, as much as there might not be a problem for me, there is a problem for others. How do I go about educating myself about what that problem looks like or how it manifests in in day-to-day life? So I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing really is going to be toned from the top. Us, Us lower level people, Um, who kind of do the work day to day, we can recognize that there's a problem. But if our leadership in our corporations don't recognize that there is a problem or an opportunity to be tapped in, because really diversity and equity and inclusion, that's an opportunity, a business opportunity for us to unmask and uncover and figure out so that businesses can do better. If our leaders don't accept that and they don't model that, then the rest of us who are working for those leaders or working with those leaders, we won't be able to follow suit as effectively. And Tamika also had a note about troubling trends south of the border with regard to diversity, inclusion and equity programs and the things that we're seeing down there. So I do want to kind of touch on, Jerry, like the whole um, trend that we're seeing south Mm -hmm. of the border with respect to putting away diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives because they're seen as not needed or harmful to a corporation. And I just want to encourage our corporate Canadian landscape to not buy into the lie that's being fed to us from our Southern neighbors, but to really keep 
pushing on and fighting the good fight with respect to making sure that our workplaces are equitable for all of our diverse communities, including Black Canadians, just because we've seen, and, and the numbers show it, bottom lines do better when you've got a table surrounded by people with diverse backgrounds and experiences working towards a common goal. And the only way we can do that, particularly with the way things are kind of moving now, is to change what we've been doing for decades before and really kind of open up the doors to the people that might not look or act or come from the same places that we do. I'm glad uh, Tamika touched on the issue, uh, Jerry, uh, on the issue of the pushback on diversity, equity and inclusion programs. Last year, lots of articles out there uh, everywhere I've been looking, Globe and Mail, Washington Post, New York Times. There is a there is a pushback. On, I, on the program itself. And I, I I can't even see why I can maybe understand misrepresenting some industrial organizational research that, oh, if you are just doing diversity education inclusion programs, if you're just doing quote unquote sensitivity training, that it is not necessarily that effective. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, well, you also need to walk more of the walk. So I just I don't understand why there would be pushback. It's always literally valuable, I think. I just said literally like a millennial and devalued my argument. But I think it is always. <laughs> valuable there's bottom line numbers are affected when you do have a mixture of skills and backgrounds say in a c-suite even yeah part of it is i mean i just look at it as as the demographic shift that is occurring in vancouver across canada in western nations and society has to sort of change with it some of it's slow some of it's fast but there's always going to be some pushback from entrenched interests as Mm -hmm. well right and sometimes when you do make changes you do go too far too fast as well so you've got to kind of weigh that Uh, but thank you so much for that really appreciate it but at this time we're going to talk a little bit about black history month joining me now is our show contributor jerry mary judson hello jerry hello jazz what's going on how are you today i'm doing okay it's friday it's friday i can't complain at least there's that and it's not raining yet so exactly actually it's, it's quite funny we're always talking about the fact that hey when's it getting dark when's it getting dark yep. we always look out the studio because mm-hmm. when we lo- leave the show it's, it's dark. dark. It's yeah, but it's about five fifteen. The sun starts setting. Right, so like at least we get to almost witness there. the sunset during the show. It's yes, pretty good. I know, but I love the idea that it's getting later and later. So it's just another month. We're all going to be okay. Oh, we're so, all gonna be okay. <laughs> I don't know how to segue into this, but there was some research uh, done by KPMG Canada mm-hmm. with regard to Black History Month. This bit of research comes out every February mm-hmm. to see kind of how we're doing in a corporate Canada sense with regards to diversity, inclusion, and equity, and racism in the workplace and things like that. And ideally, we improve in both of those arenas every year. Um, and K- KPMG is a firm that provides audit, tax, and advisory services to small to medium businesses and nonprofits and things like that. So this research this year kind of brings our attention to a double-edged sword. So the two most salient statistics here that I wanted to focus on is that 8 in 10 Black Canadians feel that their employer has made progress in diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, which is great. But the same thing, 8 in 10 Black Canadians have also experienced some form of racism or microaggression in the workplace this past year. And so that was striking to me um, that these two statistics can exist simultaneously. So Mm -hmm. I talked with Tamika Miller. She is a senior manager in audit and assurance at KPMG Canada, and she co-founded the firm's Black Professional Employees Network because I wanted to understand this a little better. So I asked Tamika, how can both of these things be true? It's really a numbers game, right? Like, I mean, if you take a step back, 
you have to admit that there has been some progress. Four years ago, there weren't as many C-suite Black professionals. Even if you go back a couple more decades, Black women in the workplace weren't really a thing or wasn't as, as prevalent as it is now. But then at the same time, as much as we are making progress, I think the other side of that coin, the 81% of Black Canadians who are experiencing the racism and the microaggressions, that kind of tells you the real story as to what's really going on. Because eight out of 10 Black Canadians are still going into the workplace and experiencing some sort of racism or microaggression, whether it be someone saying, oh, girl, I love your hair. Can I touch it? Even if they ask to touch it Mm -hmm. or just touching it like point blank. Right. So, I mean, there's many ways where that racism can can manifest. But I, I do think it's looking on one side saying, OK, we we have made progress. Things aren't as bad as they were maybe like 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. But at the same time, are we where we need to be? Not really. Not yet. So you have lived experience as a Black woman at the intersection of that in corporate yep. Canada. So I would be interested, like from your perspective, how can an employer or even an individual do better to tamp down on this racism in the workplace such that we don't see eight out of 10 next year? So I think the first step to fixing the problem that exists is actually acknowledging that there is a problem. I think a lot of people kind of brush aside DEI initiatives and racist occurrences because they think there's no problem. Like, what do you mean, Tamika, that you don't feel equitably treated at work? What do you mean you don't have access to the same opportunities and, and resources? Like, that doesn't exist. And I think it's because a lot of us have blinders on. So it's to kind of take the initiative to remove the blinders and listen to the experiences and stories of those in your circle or those who are in your environment and really recognize and appreciate that, hey, as much as there might not be a problem for me, there is a problem for others. How do I go about educating myself about what that problem looks like or how it manifests in in day-to-day life? So I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing really is going to be toned from the top. Us, Us lower level people, Um, who kind of do the work day to day, we can recognize that there's a problem. But if our leadership in our corporations don't recognize that there is a problem or an opportunity to be tapped in, because really diversity and equity and inclusion, that's an opportunity, a business opportunity for us to unmask and uncover and figure out so that businesses can do better. If our leaders don't accept that and they don't model that, then the rest of us who are working for those leaders or working with those leaders, we won't be able to follow suit as effectively. And Tamika also had a note about troubling trends south of the border with regard to diversity, inclusion and equity programs and the things that we're seeing down there. So I do want to kind of touch on, Jerry, like the whole um, trend that we're seeing south Mm -hmm. of the border with respect to putting away diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives because they're seen as not needed or harmful to a corporation. And I just want to encourage our corporate Canadian landscape to not buy into the lie that's being fed to us from our Southern neighbors, but to really keep pushing on and fighting the good fight with respect to making sure that our workplaces are equitable for all of our diverse communities, including Black Canadians, just because we've seen, and and the numbers show it, bottom lines do better when you've got a table surrounded by people with diverse backgrounds 
and experiences working towards a common goal. And the only way we can do that, particularly with the way things are kind of moving now, is to change what we've been doing for decades before and really kind of open up the doors to the people that might not look or act or come from the same places that we do. I'm glad uh, Tamika touched on the issue, uh, Jerry, uh, on the issue of the pushback on diversity, equity and inclusion programs. Last year, lots of articles out there uh, everywhere I've been looking, Globe and Mail, Washington Post, New York Times. There is a there is a pushback. On, I, on the program itself. And I, I I can't even see why. I can maybe understand misrepresenting some industrial organizational research that, oh, if you are just doing diversity education inclusion programs, if you're just doing quote unquote sensitivity training, that it is not necessarily that effective. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, well, you also need to walk more of the walk. So I just, I don't understand why there would be pushback. It's always literally valuable, I think. I just said literally like a millennial and devalued my argument. But I think it is always <laughs> valuable there's bottom line numbers are affected when you do have a mixture of skills and backgrounds say in a c-suite even yeah part of it is i mean i just look at it as as the demographic shift that is occurring in vancouver across canada in western nations and society has to sort of change with it some of it's slow some of it's fast but there's always going to be some pushback from entrenched interests as Mm -hmm. well right and sometimes when you do make changes you do go too far too fast as well so you've got to kind of weigh that Uh, but thank you so much for that really appreciate Appreciate it. The politics of order, order. Mr. Speaker. Order. The week that was begins right now. Joining me now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hello, Keith. Hey, Jazz. Lots to talk about. We got Peter Polyev joining us uh, at uh, five thirty today in studio. Now, one of the things Mr. Polyev proposed this week was for First Nations to collect taxes from industry that he says would speed up negotiations and project approvals. Uh, and many have uh, been quite interested in uh, his idea. It was the idea was developed by the First Nations Tax Commission? Uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, is this going to be the new normal in regards to how we move forward? with our conversations with First Nations people and how business talks to First Nations as well. Well, it's been the new, it's been, it's not even a new reality. It's been the reality for some time. Major resource projects cannot proceed without First Nations uh, support. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, uh, consent, but it means uh, support. And uh, some people suggest that they have a a veto over projects. They have, I think, a de facto veto. Uh, A number of court decisions have supported their constitutional rights and their territorial rights when it comes to projects. And the reality is, in B.C., for example, uh, some of the major projects that have proceeded, such as LNG, uh, the Site C Dam, these super projects, have not been able to proceed without significant financial compensation to First Nations. So what Mr. Poliad is proposing is not radically different than what's being done in B.C. He's proposing a direct taxation power, uh, direct and for the federal government to vacate that tax and, and allow First Nations to collect that tax. Uh, it's just another way of addressing up financial compensation. Instead of a grant or just one-time payment, this would be a taxation stream. Uh, proposed by First Nations, supported by First Nations, uh, the B.C. government is in the midst of a consultation process about the Land Act, which has a component of uh, First Nations uh, co-management, uh, 
and by implication, um, some revenue impacts when it comes to decisions made on the land regarding resource development. So Poliev and the B.C. government and the B.C. NDP predecessor, B.C. Liberal government, not totally dissimilar to each other in uh, acknowledging one way or another, First Nations has to have some input and say and financial benefit, when it com- and which can be very substantial when it comes to these massive resource projects that take place on land considered their ancestral territory. Now, under Mr. Polyev's plan, uh, it would permit First Nations to collect 50% of the federal taxes paid by industrial activities on their land with industry getting a tax credit in exchange. That's all well and good. Uh, you know, my one concern, and that's not specific to Mr. Polyev's plan, but broadly speaking, how does this, A, help uh, you know natural resource projects get approved faster, or at least with some clarity? Because right now, if you look at the history of our province in the last five to ten years, we have scared away business. We make it very difficult for projects to, to be approved in a, in a reasonable amount of time. That could be mining, it can be uh, forestry, uh, it could be LNG. Uh, I mean, uh, do you think in this in any way will help projects and be given clarity in regards to moving forward? Well, every international or every national uh, executive I talk to on when it comes to resources, the number one thing they're looking for is certainty. And certainty in terms of what the rules are. What, whether it's taxation, whether it's First Nations rights or whatever, they want certainty. So if everything's clarified and a process is there in clear daylight, that is what industry is looking for before they make an investment decision. And I think slowly but surely, I think we're getting there. I mean, it, it takes 10 years to get a mine to open. Mm-hmm. And the EV government's pledged to a couple of gold mines up north with these, and also critical um, mineral mines, that the process, and both the federal government and the provincial governments have promised that process is going to be spe- sped up significantly. Um, it remains to be seen how it's going to work on the ground, though. But uh, again, back to your first question, you, the reality is you cannot in, uh, embark on a na- uh, significant natural resource project in B.C., without securing First Nations approval and in guaranteeing First Nations benefits, particularly when it comes to financial compensation. Hmm. Well, let's talk about another issue here. That, of course, is international students. We focused on, on this issue for many months, and, and we know they're cutting back on international students this year. The province, uh, according to students at UVic, they believe they need to invest significantly more into post-secondary education. As UVic announced a $13 million budget cut after the federal government announced, of course, uh, that they're uh, going to pull back on the amount of international students, once again, uh, proving uh, that uh, international students have had an outsized impact on tuition revenue. In the case of University of Victoria, uh, tuition from international students was approximately 33% of total tuition revenue this year, which overall represents about 12% of overall revenue yep. for, for UVic. What do you see happening? I mean, UVic is one thing, but if I, I look at some of the colleges in our suburbs, I look at even Vancouver, International, Vancouver Island University sorry, in Nanaimo and some of these other interior universities and colleges, it's not just a Victoria thing. Do you see significant change coming? Well, it's the 33% figure is the provincial figure as well. So there's 540,000 post-secondary education students. 176,000 of those are um, international, and that's 33% of the total. However, of that 176, the majority, about 95,000, are in private um, institutions. About 82,000 are in public. So, yeah, it's going to be 33% hit in for some 
a little lower in others, a little higher in others. And the translates according to, and we're finally getting some, some numbers from universities of what the impact's going to be. We know that it's a, a significant amount of money. I mean, the last figure we got was back in 2017, where international students um, contributed $5 billion in economic activity in terms of revenue from tuition and economic act- activity. Um, so now, yeah, we got from Uvic the first numbers, 13%, which they, 13 million, which they equate, if they don't get it, results in a Four percent reduction in staff, which would mean layoffs, which would be, I think, fairly chaotic on a campus of that size. Uh, David Eby today or this week said, in his words, "Don't press the panic button yet." But the budget is literally right around the corner, and if it's not reflected in terms of increased funding to commensurate the um, the loss of revenue here for international uh, student loss. We're going to see some problems come uh, the, the coming fiscal year from universities and colleges. And we'll see if that's reflected in the budget. As I say, the budget's on the 24th. We'll see if the revenue to post-secondary institution increases significantly to replace that lost revenue mm-hmm. or whether universities are going to have to figure a way out of this. It is a significant revenue hit. I mean, we're talking... As I say, you know, when you've got 100, well, in the public system, 82,000 students who are paying a disproportionately high rate mm-hmm. of tuition, much more than than uh, residents here, that is, and, and I know from personal experience, family uh, members and such, uh, universities are increasingly uh, dependent on international students. When I was at UBC, there was nowhere near the net number of international students that there is today, for example, or SFU. Uh, it's just become part of the fabric. And now the, the feds have cut it by a third or 35 percent. And that's a big hit that we've baked it into our business model for what, well over two or three decades now. And we're paying for it now. That's for sure. All right, folks, give us a call on the open line. I want to hear from you. We've been talking about Pierre Polyus plan uh, for First Nations to collect taxes from industry in regards to project approvals uh, on their land. Keith was just talking also about you know, University of Victoria making cuts already. As the federal government says, we're going to cut back on international students. That means revenue is uh, decreasing not only at UVic, but many other public and private colleges. Let's go to Doug in Surrey. Hi, Doug. Hi, Jazz. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? Well, when Polyev runs his mouth out here in this part of the country, he's just like uh, Harper before him. He's got the same speechwriter. He'll say what he's supposed to say, and he's just a pretender to the throne. He'll say anything he has to say to get the top job. Well, it's working for him. He's sitting at 40% approval. What do you think of the idea, though, of um, Mr. Polyev's idea, saying that that First Nations would be able to collect under his leadership to collect taxes from industry that he says will speed up negotiations and project approvals? Like everything else, I doubt if he's ever done an honest day's work in his life, just like Harvard before him. So as a result, he'll say anything because he knows nothing about the real world that we live in. All right. Well, I will take uh, that under advisement, Doug. Thank Another you. Another undecided your... voter. Another <laughs> undecided voter. Well, you know, he, if people complain about him. I mean, there's those that like him, bills that may not like him, but he's sitting at, what, 40% approval right now, Keith? And he's doing something right. Yeah, and the caller's right to some respect. He is saying what he needs to say, but at some point, what people want to see some policies, and to his credit, he did announce a policy. This yeah. is a policy. It's not just a vague uh, promise. So obviously, some of the details have to be worked out, but the, the, the skeleton frame is there. Um, and the pressure will be on him to announce more detailed policies as the next election draws near. I mean, he has written where he is with a lot of rhetoric, a lot of uh, cute sound bites and clever cl- clips and, you know, just inflation, that type of thing. 
But after a while, I think people tire of that. They want something a little more substantive, and the pressure's on to start delivering some policy, detailed policies. Yeah, he's t- he made an announcement today on um, uh, those who are accused of uh, or are convicted of extortion. Will there be minimum ma- mandatory sentences there? He's talked about auto thefts just recently. We know where he sits on carbon tax. Is it the full gamut? No, it's not. Uh, there's a lot of time before the next federal election occurs. Um, but, you know, he's starting to roll out some of this stuff. And I think it, going on going to what you were saying, Keith, uh, you're right. He's relied on short, snappy sound bites, but somewhere along the way, someone's going to say, "Where's the beef?" And I think he has to show some of that, or he's going to peak too early. So I think that's a recognition of of some of those complaints. Yeah, and again, the peaking too early is the concern he has to have, and I think that's the Liberals' best hope right now is just wait it out. Don't uh, Jagmeet Singh is mused about you know pulling the plug on the Liberal government. That would be political suicide because right now uh, polio is at the peak. And they need him to to descend to the bottom. Whether that can happen remains unclear. But uh, time is the best thing the Liberals have going for them right now. They can wait a while. Polyev would dearly like an election sooner than later. But uh, if the Liberals are smart, and if the NDP is smart, they're not going to let that happen. Yeah, let's go to Kerry in Surrey. Hi, Kerry. Uh, yes, um, so I'm going to answer your question, Jazz, while he's doing so well. It's because I don't really hear the... The media pull it, pushing back on him, asking him to actually prove anything. Your, your point about him saying about the federal tax, um, I read the CPC policy manual. And in it, he says he's going to appoint someone to oversee how the First Nations spend their own money. I wonder how they'd feel about that, knowing that, especially when he's the guy that said residential school su- survivors shouldn't get compensation because they should learn the value of hard work. Mm-hmm, but so, he's, but he so, has said that he is going to allow First Nations to collect taxes from industry if, uh, if that will speed up negotiations and project approvals. Do you think that's not a good idea? Because one of the things our country suffers from is the perception by many around the world uh, that it takes too long for projects to be approved. But the issue is, is that he's going to turn around, like, first of all, my concern is about the First Nations people. We should be treating them with the utmost respect and working towards completing UNDRIP to the best of our ability. So if he's going to turn around and say that, and then he's going to demean them by saying he's going to oversee how they spend their money, that is that totally contradicts our relationship with our First Nations people. Mm-hmm. Well, Kerry, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm glad people are asking tough questions of him, as they should. Uh, he's doing well. Uh, he could potentially be the next Prime Minister, and it's important that we ask those questions. Keith, I want to go back to uh, the Mr. Polyev's announcement on on collecting taxes from First Nations. The way he is handling it in this early stage and making this announcement, generally people said, "Oh, I'll think about that. It's not a bad idea. Let's 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 mull that over." But yet, you, as you talked about with the NDP uh, and their land issues, it seems like they're getting more pushback on the provincial side than Mr. Polyev is at this point. Yes, because there's less detail on the on the provincial side. Because, and again, it's twin to the upcoming changes to the Land Act. Mm-hmm. And there is a constituency out there, and whether it's a, it's the political opposition, both the United and opposite and Conservative Party, are suggesting this is going to result in a veto for First Nations over projects. Uh, the government has said no, it's not. But we haven't seen a lot of the details, and that by but not being really upfront and open and detailed about what is being proposed it allows the opposition to come in and sort of frame the issue along their lines. And that's the challenge Nathan Cullen of the NDP and the government in general has as it embarks on this consultation phase is not let the opposition frame it as a, simply an exercise in giving First Nations a veto. And that's a challenge. That isn't happening with polio because it's simply about giving First Nations a revenue stream. Uh, i got 20 seconds left. Uh, Super Bowl this weekend, uh, 49ers versus Kansas City Chiefs. 
Uh, you're, you're going 49ers. I'm going Chiefs. Oh, I'm, I'm, come I'll on. Chiefs team. on a last-second field goal. Mahomes uh, will do his magic again. Team Swifty. I never thought you'd say that. There you go. I'm on Team Swift. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Keith. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too. It's no surprise, folks. Yes, on April 1st, a federal tax increase on alcohol, uh, sometimes, of course, referred to as the beer tax, is scheduled to come into effect. Many Canadians soon will pay more for their alcoholic beverages of choice. It'll cost Canadians about $100 million extra for 2024 and 2025. Um, today, also, Ontario halted its own scheduled 4.6% increase of its uh, version of the federal tax, uh, and that was supposed to come into effect on March 1st. First, it's implementing a two-year freeze on the provincial tax increase that automatically would have increased based on the rate of inflation. So the federal tax is, uh, is coming. Ontario says, oh, wait a minute, we're going to not move forward <laughs> with ours. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about um, the increase, because we talked about this last year <laughs> as well, as Jeff Guinard, Executive Director of the BC Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure, Jeff. Why are we doing this again this year? <laughs> uh, that's the question we are asking as well. Uh, so just so we're clear, what, what's happening here is there, there's a tax on alcohol that no one knows about that everybody pays because it's paid by the producer. So if you produce alcohol in Canada, you pay a federal excise tax. No big deal. It's an old part of the taxation system. But a couple of years ago, the federal government decided to index future increases to that tax to inflation, which when inflation was you know 1% or 2%, wasn't that big of a deal. Industry could adapt. But now, I would, well, last year inflation was over almost 7%. This year it's almost 5%. Uh, so that tax is just going to go up automatically without Parliament even voting on it. And it's collected on the production of alcohol, you know, beer, wine, spirits, pennies at a time. But it adds up to millions and millions and millions of dollars that consumers have to pay. Because all those pubs and bars and restaurants and liquor stores that are selling you alcohol, we had to pay that tax increase too. So in this economic climate, with everything else we're dealing with, I, I don't know why we're doing this again, and it's pretty frustrating. So if I'm going to buy, let's say, some spirits or a pack of beer, like what, what kind of change would I expect? Like is it about a dollar more you'll be paying? Yeah, so it depends on the, uh, the pack size, right? Because it's on the production of alcohol and something like beer, which is a lower alcohol content to you know something like a bottle of spirits, you'll notice it more on the bigger pack sizes, right? But so if you're buying a 12-pack of beer, yeah, it could be another dollar or two could be a dollar or two on a bottle of uh, spirits, it could be 50 cents or a dollar on a bottle of wine. And I, you know, I, I don't know anybody right now who's saying it's the right time to you know, put prices up, particularly when I look at the state of the liquor and hospitality industry. It's, it's tough out there, right? We, we still have not recovered financially from the pandemic. Half of pubs and bars and restaurants in the province of British Columbia are not making money right now. They're not mm-hmm. profitable. It's not the right time to put up taxes on this industry. I think we need to follow Ontario's example and say, let's just pause this for a couple of years until we get back to some normal economic factors, and then we can talk about this again. What I don't understand is why does this stuff have to be indexed? And like, I think you know, the alcohol yeah. beverage industry should be paying its fair share of taxes. You would agree with me on that. But I don't 100%. understand why we have to index uh, yeah. an, an increase on alcohol every single year. Yeah, it's dumb. So first off, I mean, I think British Columbians know that we already pay some of the highest taxes on alcohol in, you know, on the planet, which, you know, it's a highly regulated industry. You know, the taxes make sense. That, that's not what we're talking about. But what happened here is a few years ago when the federal government indexed it to inflation, they were trying to fix another problem because they had set the, the excise tax rate. And it hadn't been changed in, in decades, right? So it was just maybe being a little bit lower than they wanted. 
federal government was dealing with their challenges, so they decided they wanted to get a little extra revenue. And, you know, they to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they said, let's raise this tax. Putting it up a little bit wasn't the problem. But when you put it an automatic increase in there tied to inflation, because inflation is never going to go down, right? What you do is you built in like this escalator that keeps on going up, even though there's nobody on it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we told the government at the time, we thought it was a mistake, um, that Parliament should be voting on these tax increases. Look, I, I worked on Parliament Hill for nearly a decade as a, as a staff member, and the Parliament does two fundamental things for our country. You make laws, right, which is mm-hmm. why we're not allowed to you know, murder and steal. Uh, but they also set the country's budget. So saying we're just going to have an automatic increase in this, just it, it's bad tax policy. Um, the whole business community has objected to it since then. And particularly when inflation is this high, it feels punitive to those members who are still just trying to recover. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, we're hoping to get this changed. Yeah, well, it, and that's the other question. So how confident? I mean, last year, uh, the government heard from Canadians uh, pretty quickly and said, OK, we're not moving forward. How confident are you yeah. they'll back away from this one as well? Well, I'm an eternal optimist. I have to be <laughs> to work in this industry, right? And uh, one of the arguments we're saying is, like, you know, January is our slowest time, and you called in our SIBO loans at that time. So hospitality industry doesn't have any money. You know, customers are spending a little bit less right now. The people producing alcohol, are, they're hurt as well. So this is going to have a negative impact on our economy, right? And the only, only people who will make more money out of this are the federal government. And that just doesn't make any sense. So last year, we got them to cap it uh, at 2% for one year. And I think that is the very least this government could do right now to try and help this industry get back on their feet. Hey, you want a talking point? I got one for you. Yeah, I'll uh, take it. Uh, do you know what else goes up on uh, April 1st? Uh, raises for members of parliament on the same... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if you knew that, but I checked into it. Yeah, so the alcohol excise tax is set to go up by 4.7%, as I said, but raises yeah. for MPs go up on the same day, and those raises range from $8,100 to $16,000. So a mem- uh, minister yeah. will make just shy of $300,000 a year, but uh, a backbench MP, so um, your MP for your community, will yeah. make $202,700 for the year, and that's uh, yeah. a basic increase of $8,100. That's a raise. So the day they, <laughs> you pay more for beer, if it goes ahead, is the day they get a raise as well. So I thought I'd throw that at you. You may want to mention that in your advertisements in your campaign. We will. I mean, that is kind of crazy. Look, like I know how hard Hard member of par- members of parliament work. I'm not going to argue that they shouldn't be paid fairly. Mm-hmm. They're often working 60, 70 hours a week. I, I saw members of all parties are working their tails off, but it does feel like they're taking those pay increases and they're getting them from the pockets of our ordinary Canadian citizens who are having to pay extra just because they want to get a six pack of beer or have a bottle of wine with dinner. In this economic climate, that just doesn't make any sense. They, you know, if, if that's what it takes to you know, get the money to stop to pay for this. Instead, they, you know, maybe they can forego a raise this year uh, and give um, the liquor and hospitality industry a break so we can get back on our feet too. I, I tell you that, that, that those stats alone get people riled up, as it should, as it yeah. should. Jeff, thank Absolutely. you so much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You as well, Jeff. Take care. Goodbye now. is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week we ask, is there such thing as free speech for elected officials, and should you pay your parking ticket on a private lot? Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host. Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster. Welcome, ladies. 
Happy Hola. Super Bowl weekend. Happy Super Bowl weekend. Oh, yeah, weekend. that's right. <laughs> that's right. Sis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, I work weekends. What do I know? Exactly. Hey, thank you for starting a half an hour earlier today. Pierre Polyev is joining us uh, at 5.30, so I appreciate you both uh, making time for us. Uh, and <laughs> I really appreciate Sarah yeah, jumping in and already saying something that I'm going <laughs> to regret. And so. I've been, I've been practicing button. holding my tongue all day. I've been thank practicing. I'm going to be right. a good girl. There good you girl. go. We have the mute button. There you go. All right. Well, this week, uh, BC Premier David Eby uh, wasn't too happy with Selena Robinson. Uh, in fact, Ms. Robinson, uh, who resigned as post-secondary education minister uh, over recent comments on, on the Mideast, has, we've learned today, received a death threat. Uh, Premier Eby called the action inexcusable in a statement posted on the social media platform X. Now, Selena Robinson, who is a post-secondary education minister, stepped down from cabinet on Monday after facing growing criticism over her comments which critics called racist and Islamophobic. Take a listen. They don't understand that it was a crappy piece of land with nothing on it. it you know, there were, you know, several hundred thousand people. But other than that, it didn't produce an economy. It didn't have, it couldn't grow things. Now, that was the minister speaking uh, on a Zoom call with the Badai Brith Association. Uh, and it was a conversation, uh, Ms. Robinson said, where she was referring to uh, the lack of natural resources uh, in that part of the world. Uh, she did not obviously mean t- for it to be insensitive. But let me go to you, Leah, first and foremost. Do you think she should have st- stepped down or uh, the fact that the, the premier wanted her to step down? Do you think it was the right thing? You know, I think it was a little harsh. Like, I don't think she should have had to step down. Definitely she should have apologized because I don't think, I think when she said it after, then she realized maybe I shouldn't have said that, which she shouldn't have. You know, it wasn't a very nice thing to say. But should she have stepped down? I think that's a little extreme. I think she could have stayed. I think, you know, she was doing a pretty good job um, for what she was doing anyway. And apparently she's supposed to be very nice. So I don't know. I think it was a little extreme. Maybe she could have just apologized and that would have been it. I mean, now everybody's getting canceled nowadays, right? So I'm not surprised by it. But, you know, I think it was just a little extreme. I think, though, as a politician, you do have to be careful of what you say. Mm -hmm. I think you have to walk a fine line. I mean, you're a former politician, right? (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to be careful of what you give your opinions on, right? So, Sarah, your thoughts, your thoughts on this. I mean, we always say politicians aren't open. They're not speaking uh, in, in a transparent manner. We're always complaining about about them and then so here's a politician who uh, speaking to the Benai Brith Association their members in a Zoom call very passionate she is of the Jewish faith and the, the country was uh, attacked there was a terrorist attack on that country um, shouldn't she be allowed to speak in a thoughtful uh, transparent manner perhaps the language may have been inelegant yes I, I would agree with that but she, mm-hmm. but we all but no one thinks she's a racist no one thinks she no, hates no. Muslims and, but and she gave it up is- Jazz and, and this is why this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, because exactly. <laughs> it, it, it comes right down to was it inelegant? Absolutely. But if you ask anybody across the political set, uh, spectrum behind the scenes as well, they will tell you that she is very well liked and and well respected on both sides of the aisle, like throughout the political caucuses mm-hmm. in British Columbia. So you've got that. She's also the highest profile Jewish member that was in, like part of the NDP uh, cabinet, mm-hmm. right? So um, was was it inelegant? Of course it was. And she knows that. And what do I think that she has a racist bone in her body? Absolutely not. There's no reason to believe that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that she wishes that she could take back the wording of that sentence in particular. Having said that, I think we all wish we could take back sentences. Now, here's the thing <laughs> is, if you're in, you know, like if you're if it seems these days that if you are one of those 
people that is a good person trying to do their best, like I'm presuming Selena Robinson is. Everything that I've heard about her has been very kind and lovely. I haven't heard nasty things about Selena Robinson. That You're the, going to be the person that pays the price because if you're on the extremes, guess what? You've managed to like monetize and polarize your base. So you mm-hmm. can say whatever you want. So this is why when I hear commercials airing federally now that say, oh my goodness, how did we get to be so divided? I'm shocked that this country is so divided while I'm putting together a, a puzzle. Give me a break. You might be behind the reasons why we're actually polarized. Mm-hmm. When you speak crap all the time on the edges, on the extremes, you make it very difficult for the, those of the rest of us to try and get along because we're trying to appease these two different corners of the world. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of us understand and realize that mistakes happen and don't think that Selena Robinson is a racist. And if she was, we would be appalled if she spoke in that manner. And of course, we would demand her resignation. But so, instead, yeah. we are being driven by the edges. And it is at our own demise. So based on what uh, Sarah is saying, Leah, do you, do you think David Eby had an obligation to his colleague, uh, to a minister in, in the cabinet, to protect uh, 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 Selena Robinson here and say, I'm not going to give in to the mob. Like I said, it's not like the opposition mm-hmm. party, BC United, was asking for uh, her resignation. No, the Conservative I, Party of BC wasn't asking for her resignation. No, it felt like he had to act, right? Like yeah, he but had who to do is he? Something. So do you speak to uh, special interest groups, uh, the mob, yeah. a social media mob? I mean, do you think he, should, he had an obligation to, uh, to protect her and not give in to this pressure? I think he should have protected her myself. I think he should have. I don't think he should have caved because if we know anything, anything about mega, we may, you know, in the States about Donald Trump, we know what kind of bases like that can do on social media. So I think he's probably looking in terms of social media and not getting hate and, and making sure he does something about it when he really should have supported her. I think, I think he could but have that said, is you know what cow- I know like, This is exactly what I'm saying. This is cowering to a, yeah. a corner, right? Exactly. And this is why yeah. this is why Trump is on the rise again because you've you've got like the United States right now that couldn't pass a border bill because Donald Trump said he didn't want it passed because he wants it to be an issue for their federal election yeah, in November. Yeah, for his election. This yeah. is what is happening and we are being run by the corners and not by the vast amount of people in the middle who are tired mm-hmm of like these, you know, crappy social issues and using wedge issues, like using the LGBT community or any other community to drive a wedge between people. It's not necessary. No. Most of us want to get along. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's Absolutely. pretty simple. Yeah. No, no politician, not many of them have had the guts to come out and say, I support the center. This is where I sit and I'm not going to kowtow to the far left or the far right. You're right. We're playing to the edges and that's where our politics is right now. And I'm not yeah. sure how and we're going to... it shouldn't get... be. It shouldn't be. You know, it should not no. be. Yeah, she should have done a better job in um, uh, yeah. talking about she that issue, especially in go. this heightened emotion. Um, you heightened apologize, emotional. which she did. Yeah, she and should have apologized the end of and that's it. it. The woman, it's not like, it's not like she was, you know, going out there and, and saying horrible things and ad vitam about the other com- other communities, like the Muslim community, anything like that, that was never the case. She said mm-hmm. something and worded it very foolishly, which she has acknowledged. Case closed. If we were talking about this 10 years ago, we wouldn't be talking about this 10 years ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the whole yeah. point. Is Thank you Trump got to 2016 that. and Trump, and then you brought yeah. in COVID and all the you know absolutely. vaccine stuff and all that kind of stuff. And here we sit today and we've got politicians taking advantage of it. And there is a reason why we're polarized. So don't tell me that you're surprised 
you know, other parties that may be running federally, that the country is divided because congratulations, you did it yourself. <laughs> there you go. But you yeah. know what does unite us? <laughs> Our hatred of private parking lots. Uh, a gentleman named Wes Schellenberg uh, is from Abbotsford and he was fined $145 by Easy Park uh, and he never paid, but looks like he had some trouble uh, because the machine was broken. So that's why he didn't pay. Uh, Global BC's Janet Brown covered his story. Take a listen. Wes Schellenberg and his wife drove into this parking lot on Glover Road back on December 15. After parking, Wes says the ticket machine was out of order, and he pointed out the problem to two parking lot attendants. And they said there was another one up by the street. So Wes went to the second machine to try and purchase a parking ticket. It just came up declined every time, so... I tried it like three, four times. As he was walking back to his car to move it to a different parking lot. I noticed that there was a ticket on my windshield already. Um, we had only been here maybe four or five minutes. Wes says then one attendant told him not to worry about it. The one guy turned around and took the ticket off the windshield and said, oh, okay, then I'll tear it up. This is what I got in the mail. Despite being told the ticket would be torn up, Wes got a fine for $145. In a statement, Easy Park says, we have investigated parking activity for December 15th, 2023, and found no issues with the meters on site. Our contracted security enforcement team is not authorized to take back any violations once they have been issued. Easy Park also says signs are posted advising of four other payment methods using mobile apps. Seniors have different levels of comfort with different things as far as technology. I'm not comfortable with that. So the question is, Leah and Sarah, would you pay? Leah, let me go to, your, uh, go to you oh. first. Have you had any challenges with these private lots? Yes. So I have a story just literally like maybe three weeks ago. I went to a, an area in Guilford. It's not, you don't pay to park, but it's parking for, you know, like the shopping area, not the mall, but like the little shopping area, right? Where mm-hmm. there's Tim Hortons and little stores. So I go in and I pull in and I park, I get out and my friend, she texts me that she's down the street because we were meeting. And so I get out of my car, walk down the street to her to get in her car. And then we pull into the parking lot, but we go closer to the shops. I get back in my car. I didn't notice I had a ticket until the next day because they put it on my window on the right side. And I got a ticket and it even had my license picture on it. They gave me a ticket a minute after I left. So they sit in their cars and watch you. So I complained and I put in a complaint. I said, I actually was shopping there. I got in my friend's car so we could go closer to the store. Haven't heard back from them in their private parking place too. And I'm like, I, I looked online and everybody says the same thing. They sit in their cars. They sit and watch people because odds are people are going to pay the ticket, right? So they're kind of playing an odds game. So most people will pay, some will complain and then they don't pay, right? So they're playing an odds game. That's all that it is. So this topic is very, very frustrating. <laughs> Right I can now. tell. Sarah, what about you? Have you have you ever gotten those parking uh, tickets from these private lots? I, I I guess I don't really go anywhere interesting that I'd need a private lot. <laughs> thank heavens. Um, really? But, but oh, but but you. I mean, like, let's face it. It's me. If this happened to me, you know what would happen? Oh yes. I mean, it would be on full blast, and it would be you would. They would rue the day. That yeah. That this. But I, I mean, I understand that they're trying to make a living and everything like that. But it's just like it's the same thing as like with tow trucks, right? You know, they, mm-hmm. they just wait, um, the, the tow they trucks that are wait. all lined up at three o'clock in the afternoon, just waiting. And, you know, somebody's running out of their, out of the store trying to get back. And at literally at three Oh one, your car is gone. 
You know, there's yeah. there's no grace. There's no anything like that. It's I guess they must get bonuses for the the most tickets that they hand out. It's kind mm-hmm. of like we always used to be suspicious about how at the end of the month people got yeah you know, police officers to be police yeah. officers speeding <laughs> tickets seem to be more of a thing. It's like is there a quota? Is there they do have a quota? Know about. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. Now, Paul Doroshenko, who is a traffic uh, lawyer uh, with Acumen Law, uh, spoke to Rob uh, Fay yesterday about this situation. Take a listen to his comments. You know, historically, one of the things that I've done, and it's been a very few times, but it's over the course of my life, is I've written a check for the cost of the next hour's parking, right? So say you go and you pay to park and you end up five minutes over uh, the time that you've got, and I come back and I get a ticket, I've written a check to that company and said, this is the, the actual damages or the next hour's parking. Um, and it's fair <laughs> for you to, to get that. And it's, you know, uh, inconvenient for me, but I didn't expect to be beyond the time period. And they've cashed the check. And I know some people have done that written with a letter uh, and the company's written back and said, no way. Um, but in a case like this, really, like you contact the company and usually in the form of a letter or an email, uh, I like the formality of a letter. Uh, if it's to save $145, you know, it might be worth writing a letter to them and saying, this is what happened. Maybe that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Well, who has the time? Who wants to write a letter, right? I would be fine to write a letter or an email or anything else like that, except for the fact that half the time you can't find an address or you can't find an email. It's There is nothing. It's just like send this money to like, you know, X, Y, Z. And if you try calling, you get somebody who's like clearly like, you know, may have fallen on their head several times in the last hour and, you know, is literally not interested whatsoever in helping you in any way, shape or form. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's almost to save any more time on it. It's how much is my time worth is like, you know, one hundred and twenty five dollars worth five hours of my time. I don't know. But then then if they win for this, I get furious. Yes. So, <laughs> if you get so many tickets, guess what? Change your drive your license plate because they only have it by license really? plate. So there you go. Yeah. Oh, that's Just smart. No, that's all you have to do. Change your it, license does plate. It, does it cost they a lot? To, your info. Does it cost a lot to change like 40 your? Forty bucks or something like that. Is it really? Forty bucks. Yeah. That's well, that's it. smart. License plate. Yeah. So, I, there you that's go. actually probably true because <laughs> I I know I it certainly is. know that with uh, you, with ICBC your the, your license plate would be attached to anything that was government issued tickets like a police ticket or anything else like that. Yes. But for private lots, they would I unless they you, only they get your license you, plate. Well, if they'd have your license plate, if they can find you and everything like that, they may come after you later and go after your credit rating, put a, do something like that. That's the only problem, right? But you can repark there again with a new license. <laughs> but, if they were, but, but here's so the go. thing is, if they, if they would just actually, you know, if you'd like to dispute the ticket, here's your time frame exactly, and here's your phone number or email, that yeah. would just make life, it just, just give us a chance to actually have a conversation and don't incentivize your employees. Yeah. By sending them out there yeah. like Although, a bunch of piranhas waiting to strike. I have yeah. read that it doesn't impact your credit rating. I have to, we'll look it into that for next it week. It doesn't yeah. impact. See, no. Leah says that with such authority like she's done it and changed her license. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> you can never find Leah's car in a parking lot. There you go. Yeah, license I keep all changing the time. my license plate, all right? There you go. Leah, Sarah, thank you. <laughs> Happy weekend, gang.
Our next guest has been touring British Columbia. It's one of Pierre Polyev's many visits to our region in the past year. Now, as opposition leader, many have said that he has forced, uh, focused on rather, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government's policies. But what we've heard from Mr. Polyev over the last few weeks are policies as well that he's announcing if he is elected Prime Minister. Today, Mr. Polyev announced he will establish mandatory minimum prison sentences for anyone uh, convicted of extortion. It's one of many policy announcements that he has made. Uh, Mr. Polyev's remarks were delivered in a commercial centre in Surrey today where police say shots were fired at a business in November of last year. Mr. Polyev, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you. Good to see you. I know we talked a lot uh, on the phone, but it's good to have you in our studio. Let's start with your announcement uh, from today. Why was this uh, policy announcement made? I mean, there's a lot of things that you're going to be responsible for if you're elected Prime Minister. Why was this particular uh, extortion policy a priority for you? Because it's a priority for our people. After eight years of Trudeau, uh, extortions are up 218% nationwide and 386% in British Columbia. Uh, This is the direct result of the catch and release system that he created in uh, Liberal bills C-75 and C-5. These allow for things like house arrest uh, and same-day bail for violent offenders. He also removed mandatory jail time for extortion committed with a gun. So someone comes up, uses a firearm, and puts it in someone's face and says, I want your money, uh, then they could get convicted and not go to jail. Um, So that's why we have chaos in our streets. Our RCMP is not cracking down on organized crime. And so today I came with a common-sense plan to stop the crime and stop the extortion. But you think that's directly related to Mr. Trudeau's plan and his policies? So the criminal code is federal. The RCMP, which is responsible for international and organized crime, is federal. Uh, CBSA, our border control, is federal. Uh, So, yes, this is entirely a federal problem. Our police are doing their job. They're arresting the bad guys, but there's bad guys are getting released on same-day bail or on house arrest, allowing them to go back out on the streets and reoffend. There's no consequences for these offenses. Um, and that's why we have this new phenomenon of decent, honorable business people opening up their mailbox and getting a threatening letter that says, pay $100,000 or we're throwing a firebomb through your, ch- your child's uh, window in the middle of the night. Uh, we never had this before Trudeau. And the good news is we won't have it after he's gone. All right, let's focus on one of your other announcements. That was, it was a policy proposal that you had announced, which was that First Nations would collect taxes from industry uh, to speed up negotiations and project approvals. Walk me through why you think this would speed, speed, uh, speed up approvals. So right now when a business wants to harvest lumber, dig a mine, build a pipeline on First Nations lands, there's like many, many years of negotiations. And they have to then negotiate these very complicated benefit agreements. I'm saying... Let's give First Nations a completely different option, which is that they could collect half the federal corporate tax that the business pays on the earnings that they generate from the project. So right now, those businesses pay the tax to Ottawa, and then the First Nations have to go and apply to two different federal departments, filling out hundreds of pages of forms to get some of the money back for clean water or education. Mm -hmm. Why not just pay the tax to the First Nation government? cut the middleman out, less government and bureaucracy in Ottawa, 
more resources for First Nations, clean drinking water, job training, schools, hospitals, right in their communities. And it's a very simple formula. I'm going to let the First Nation collect half of the federal corporate tax that the business would pay for the operations on First Nations land. And do you think that's going to speed up some of these processes? Because I've worked in the LNG industry, and uh, uh, when I look at what what America has done with LNG and and where we were uh, ahead of them at one point, and now we've been laughed about about eight times, how do you know that this will speed up that very process? Because I've heard, like I said, my time in LNG from Asia to boardrooms in Mumbai uh, to Europe – where they are frustrated by this country's inability to provide clarity for major projects to move forward. Yes, and you're right. This is half the problem uh, that I'm fixing here with this. So there's two problems. One is the process to get First Nations buy-in is very cumbersome and slow because of the bureaucracy I just described. Give a streamlined, simple way for First Nations to benefit from projects on their lands uh, and uh, let the federal government vacate tax rooms so it doesn't cost business more money to do it. The second thing is that we, my, of my common sense plan is to end Bill C-69. This is Trudeau's anti-resource law, which means it takes 14 years to get a resource project approved. I was just at Squamish. Mm-hmm. They just get getting started now. That project was promised back in 2013-14, and it's now only coming to fruition. That's because our, our, our process is so slow, and there's so many steps. I'm going to compress that to 18 months with a new law that consults First Nations, protects our environment, but gets decisions made, and we can bring tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars of paychecks to British Columbia because we have the gas, we have the pipelines, we have the cool weather to make it cheaper to liquefy the gas, we have the coast and the ports, and we have the the energy-hungry Asian market that wants to close down coal fire plants to cut greenhouse gases but needs our natural gas to replace it with. So let's bring home those paychecks to Canada. Uh, Mr. Polyev, um, I'm going to... Talk about an issue here that uh, that you have focused on, but the provincial government is also focusing on, and I think you're very similar. And I mean that as a compliment when I compare your 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 approach and an NDP government's approach. Premier David Eby uh, has you know really focused on housing, just as you have. He has expressed frustration, at least indirectly through his comments, with municipalities. And with this new housing plan, they uh, have introduced legislation that goes above and beyond and bigfoots municipalities. Now, when I hear your comments in your housing plan where you want to incentivize municipalities uh, in regards to meeting targets, I sense that you have the same frustration that that municipalities um, uh, are a bottleneck or a roadblock to really get the amount of housing that needs to build. Is that assertion correct in in my mind? Yes, Uh, First of all, housing costs have doubled under Trudeau after he promised to lower them. Look at Vancouver. It's now the the third most expensive housing market in the world when you compare median income to median house prices. Uh, Rent has gone from, on average, $1,390 for a two-bedroom when I was housing minister eight years ago to $3,500 on average today. And part of that is that we have the fewest homes per capita in the G7, even though we have by far the most land to build on. Mm-hmm. What's the obstacle? Well, it's bureaucracy. Uh, in Van- According to the C.D. Howe Institute, bureaucratic obstacles and taxes add $1.3 million to the cost of every newly built Vancouver home. Uh, that's far more than labor, land, and lumber. 
So your biggest cost is not the people who build the homes, the land you build it on, or the materials that go into it. It's the bureaucracy. So my common sense plan is to require cities permit 15% more housing completions by the third year of my term, Mm -hmm. or they will lose federal money. Those that beat my target will get a building bonus, and it will be strictly proportional to the amount by which they meet or or exceed our target. So I want to pay municipal bureaucracies the way realtors and home builders are paid. Realtors are paid per home sold. Builders per home built. Mm -hmm. I want municipalities to be paid per home permitted. Speed up. By the way, I'm going to require every federally funded transit station have high sky rises all around them, or they're not going to get the federal money. And I'm going to sell 6,000 federal buildings, thousands of acres of federal land uh, to build, build, build. I want to replicate what the Squamish have done with their development here in Vancouver, 6,000 homes on 10 acres of land. Never could have been done if City Hall had its way because the gatekeepers would have blocked it. But because the First Nations are far more entrepreneurial than municipal governments, it can be done. But they've proven that it can be done and, and it will be done when I put these incentives in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that hit home. I think we all know how expensive uh, real estate is here, even renting, as you had mentioned. Uh, it hit home uh, earlier this week when we learned of a student from Calgary. Yes. <laughs> who flies in for two classes a week and is still cheaper. It's $1,200 a month. <laughs> well, then there's the defense lawyer in Vancouver who's got three of her clients have asked to help her, help them stay in jail because they don't want to have to come out of prison and pay the rent. She's tweeted about this. You Seriously? should bring her on your show. She's, on, she's on Twitter. Stephen, pay attention. That's a good one. <laughs> oh my God. So it's better to be in jail than to be in this rental market after eight years of Trudeau is not worth the cost. Yeah. Well, a final uh, question too, and I really want to hone in on this carbon tax issue. Now you say you want to ax the tax. We've had wildfires in this province. We've had atmospheric rivers. Uh, you know, climate change is a real issue uh, near and dear uh, to British Columbians here in dealing with it. We've had uh, very hot weather. It led to the death of 600 British Columbians just not too long ago. We believe we should do something about carbon, climate change. Um, if you would get rid of the carbon tax, how are you going to fix or deal with this issue? Because I would think other nations like China would still want to see us do something about this, right, at the end of the day. How would you deal with the issue of climate change if you want to eliminate the carbon tax? We need to green like green projects, make uh, carbon-free alternatives more affordable rather than making traditional energy more expensive. So what does that mean? Uh, We need to repeal the anti-resource laws like C69 to quickly approve hydroelectric dams, responsibly approve nuclear energy to replace dirty coal fire in provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, um, approve uh, tidal uh, wave power, um, carbon capture and storage. Uh, these projects will allow us to bring more clean, green, emissions-free energy onto our grid. Then we need to mine the minerals of electrification like uh, lithium, cobalt, graphite. If you want an electric future, you should be mining the minerals here. But when it takes 25 years to get a mine approved, we're never going to do it. That's why we're importing all of the electric car batteries that go into our cars from countries that burn coal to make them. That does nothing for our environment. So let's bring home the production here. Let's produce more clean, green, emissions-free 
energy in Canada to lower the cost of this clean energy rather than raising the cost of traditional sources. When you say nuclear, I, I think British Columbians would just give you, say, a hard no to that, even though we have hydroelectric. We're not the province. Yeah, you probably you, don't need it here because you've got the yeah, hydro. But you say critical minerals, you want to speed up mining. And mm-hmm. I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. But that also, you know, when I hear you say that, I see a lot of friction between you and the province as well and some of these policies. Are you willing to, to, to go down that route and have that fight? Well, look, the, the, the provinces haven't been the major obstacle. It's been the federal government ever since Trudeau got in he stood in the way of the uh, ring of fire in northern Ontario where First Nations are trying to harvest uh, the electric minerals uh, that we have beneath our feet. Uh, it was Trudeau that blocked uh, you know you worked in in LNG mm-hmm. eight years ago we had 18 LNG liquefaction projects on the table and Trudeau's blocked all but one. LNG Canada has gone ahead. And, and now, of course, we're just starting to get wood fiber going in Squamish. But none of the others have even have a shovel in the ground. So it, the federal government is the obstacle. Both Trudeau and the NDP, who are in this coalition together, are against developing our resources. Only the common sense conservatives will repeal C-69 green light these projects so that we can bring home powerful paychecks for our people. Mr. Polly, uh, I know we've talked a lot on the phone. Really appreciate you, making, appreciate you making the time to come in and talk to me here in studio and I look forward to chatting with you many more times this year. We've got a lot, busy 2025, I think, for you. Absolutely. Axe the tax, build the homes, fix the budget, stop the crime. Axe the tax, build the homes, fix the budget, stop the crime. Bring it home. Mr. Polly, thank you thank for you. your time. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.